Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. On January 20th, 2017, Donald Trump stood on the steps of the Capitol and swore to protect the United States Constitution in the presidential oath of office. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. Four years later, on January 6th, 2021, Trump, who had lost his 2020 bid for re-election, stood before a rally and inflamed his supporters with lies and untruths about that 2020 election. He claimed he had won. He did not. He claimed the election was stolen. It was not. And he told the gathered thousands that the constitutionally mandated count of electoral votes happening at that moment in the Capitol had to be disrupted by any means. He invoked a version of, we had to destroy the village in order to save it, by bewitching the crowd with the poisoned logic of, in order to protect the Constitution, we must violate it. And Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution and for the good of our country. And if you're not, I'm going to be very disappointed in you, I will tell you right now. Trump then told his supporters to march to the Capitol, saying, quote, we will fight like hell. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. Approximately one hour later, rioters overwhelmed Capitol police, breached the Capitol building, forced the stoppage of the electoral count, stormed the Senate and House chambers, and caused members of Congress to flee for their lives. Trump was in the White House watching. Though he had sworn to preserve the Constitution of the United States, he did nothing in his power as president to protect it. He simply watched the violence unfold on television. Then, at 4.17 in the afternoon, after panicked pressure from advisors surrounding him, Trump released a pre-recorded video expressing his love for the mob that had invaded the Capitol. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. 
There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The Constitution, which Trump had sworn to preserve and protect, contains this clause. It is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Quote, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability." End quote. So does the 14th Amendment, Section 3, apply to Donald Trump? Gerard Maglioka is a professor of law at Indiana University's School of Law, and he's the author of a number of books, including American Founding Son, John Bigham and the Invention of the 14th Amendment. Professor Maglioka, welcome to On Point. Thank you, Magna. It's nice to be here. Does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to Trump? I think that it does. I think that January 6th constitutes an insurrection within the meaning of Section 3. I think that former President Trump engaged in insurrection before and on January 6th, and that the provision covers him because of the oath that he took, which you played, and because he is covered as an officer of the United States, and he is seeking an office under the United States. So therefore, to put it a finer point on it, you say that the Constitution mandates uh, that Donald Trump should not be able to hold office again in this country. Yes, that's correct. Now, it's an unfamiliar territory for all of us. The provision was dormant for 150 years after the Civil War. So it's understandable that people are asking a lot of questions and are skeptical about certain aspects of applying this provision to what happened on January 6th or to Donald Trump. But I hope that in the coming months, as we learn more about what Section 3 was about and more about how it relates to what happened on January 6th, that people will be persuaded that this is the correct conclusion. Mm. Well, I just highlighted some of the things that Trump said on January 6th. There's also, of course, all that he did in the months between you know, November, December uh, and January between 2020 and 2021. Well, many of which he's under indictment for now, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So let's do exactly what you said, Professor, and learn more about the story of Section 3 and what's in it. First of all, 
Uh, remind me of its exact date of ratification in the Constitution, because it is a post-Civil War amendment. Right. So Section 3 is ratified in 1868 and is really the embodiment of Lincoln's pledge in his second inaugural, with malice toward none, with charity for all. And I say that because the framers of the amendment did not throw all of the former Confederate leaders in jail, take away all their property or all of their rights. They put in this one modest limitation. They couldn't serve in office. And they coupled that with the idea that there would be generous amnesty given to people who showed that they deserved it. And within a few years, most of the former Confederates, except for the top leadership like Jefferson Davis, were given amnesty. And so it was really a very generous and not a punitive measure in keeping with the spirit of reconciliation. So that is kind of what we're looking at, only excluding Donald Trump from office, not looking at least under the constitutional provision to a criminal punishment or mm -hmm. some other punishment. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting to me is that, of course, the 14th Amendment as a whole comes after the Civil War, and its most famous or best known uh, part would be the equal protection uh, under the law part, um, applying to the you know newly freed, formerly enslaved people of the United States. Uh, but why was, I mean, why was this part sort of tacked on? Was there evidence, fear, or just knowledge that the very same um, insurrectionists, the very same Confederates who had uh, seceded from the Union were going to serve again in former Confederate states? Yes. So there were elections held throughout the South in 1865. And Many of the former officials who had then served the Confederacy were elected and sent back into their old positions, either in Congress or in state government. And so the Republicans in Congress at the time thought this was unacceptable, that these people could not be trusted with power again unless they showed some repentance or some uh, sort of apology for what they had done. Uh, it's also worth pointing out, though, that members of Congress in framing Section 3 did say that they intended the provision to apply to future insurrections, not just the one that had just occurred. So there was sort of a backward-looking aspect to it, but there was also a forward-looking aspect to it. I want to know the exact story behind that, because I understand there was a particular single word um, that was in an original draft of Section 3 that was then struck from what we what finally ended up in the Constitution that implied that they were indeed looking forward to uh, the consequences of potential future insurrections. Right. So in a very early version of Section 3, the phrase, the late insurrection was used instead of insurrection. And of course, late insurrection meant only the Civil War. But that didn't survive very long, and the rest of the time the provision was under consideration, only the term insurrection was used, and again, with the thought that it was a general provision, like much of the 14th Amendment is general in its phrasing. It applies to the circumstances they faced in 1868, but it also was meant to speak to the future, things like equal protection and due process of law, for example. So Section 3, in that sense, is similar to Section 1, in speaking in more general terms about the nature of what the amendment is supposed to do. 
Well, today we're talking about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, the one that says for anyone who has previously taken an oath of office and thereby thereafter participates in an insurrection against the United States is not eligible to hold office again. Does that apply to Donald Trump? We'll have more in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash On Point today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today, we're learning more about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution and how it applies to Donald Trump. Gerard Magliaca is with us today. He's professor of law at Indiana University and author of American Founding Son, John Bingham, and the Invention of the 14th Amendment. Professor, can you tell me a little bit more? Are there more specific uh, aspects to the story of how that word recent got removed in terms of recent in rebellions or insurrections? Do Is there historical documentation of the discussion that happened around it? Sort of, let me put it this way, who was there in the room? Well, the initial idea for Section 3 had to do with taking away the voting rights of all former Confederates for a period of five years. And so it was in that phase of the discussion that the phrase late insurrection was referred to because it was talking about taking away voting rights for a specific group of people that had engaged in a specific set of actions. Uh, But that draft first was changed even before it it got all the way through the House of Representatives. And then second, it was replaced entirely in the Senate, which threw out the idea of limiting voting rights as being too punitive and focused instead on exclusion from office and further narrowed that to say only officials who had engaged in oath breaking would be excluded from office, not just anybody who was part of the Confederacy, right? That is to say, if someone had been a soldier in the Confederate Army and had never served in office before, they were not excluded from running for office by the 14th Amendment. It was only people who had been officials and had betrayed their trust by joining secession that they were excluded. So it was it was pretty early on decided that we should focus on office holding and that it should be a general provision rather than mm-hmm. one focus specifically on the Confederacy. Now, uh, if I understand correctly, Section 3 is written originally by Senator Jacob Howard of Michigan. Is that right? That's correct. And so who is he and why is that significant? Well, so he was 
important in explaining the 14th Amendment more generally to the Senate. Uh, he gave a very famous speech discussing the first section, which had to do with, for example, equal protection and the privileges or immunities of citizens and how that might apply to the Bill of Rights. So he was considered uh, somewhat more of an authority figure in some respects than just your average senator, let's say. But in this case, he introduced Section 3 and basically had on behalf of more or less his colleagues. And so there's a connection there between Section 3 and Section 1 that wouldn't otherwise be present. Mm. And then tell me about the man in the title of your book, John Bingham. Well, John Bingham was the principal drafter of Section 1. He wrote the Equal Protection Clause, for example. Now, he didn't write Section 3, but he did go out and defend Section 3 very emphatically in speeches uh, during the 1866 election campaigns. And one of the things he made clear was that it applied to any person in any position. That is, any person who broke his oath was excluded from holding any position because they had, in effect, committed a kind of, he just, some people described it as moral perjury, not legal perjury in the criminal sense, but they had just betrayed their trust. So, and Bingham also said, look, these are the most generous terms ever given to people who have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. If you look to past examples, say in England, you know, people were, were executed for engaging in insurrection and that sort of thing. And he said, this is a, a measure of reconciliation and look at how modestly or how well we're treating the people who betrayed their trust to America. So I think it's in that spirit that we have to remember, this is not a criminal sanction. It doesn't require proof beyond a reasonable doubt as a result. It is a civil sanction limited to serving in office only. Yes. And so I think this is really important because you're right. The text does say that uh, you can never hold office again, right? With the implication being that while not uh, a legal or criminal act, at least, or not seen in terms of uh, the 14th Amendment, that to engage somehow in an insurrection of, against the United States is of such a uh, high moral crime that it permanently disqualifies you from uh, engaging in any sort of political leadership in the country forever, Professor? Well, until you can persuade two-thirds of each House of Congress to give you amnesty or a waiver. And indeed, Congress did give many people amnesty or waivers in the period after the Civil War. Within about five years, most of the former Confederates or officials who had joined the Confederacy were again able to serve because they had done some things to show that they were more or less disavowed secession and were willing to go back and support the United States government fully. So it's possible that someday people involved in January 6th will get amnesty, uh, depending on how they act and what they do. But yes, the idea was you needed to, sh you were presumed to be ineligible, and then you had to persuade a supermajority of each House of Congress to let you back in, which is a significant uh, mm. request. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper into the specific language in Section 3. So we talked about the the sweeping nature um, 
of it in terms of who would fall under Section 3. It's essentially anyone at any state or federal level of government who has previously taken, it says, an oath to support the Constitution of the United States. So there are some, I suppose, state and local level uh, positions or many of them that wouldn't apply. Um, But nevertheless, that seems quite sweeping. Why did the writers of the 14th Amendment, of Section 3, feel that it had to apply to anybody in the country who had taken an oath to protect the Constitution? I think first because they thought that taking an oath was a special act, that it was something to be taken very seriously, and that draws on other language in the Constitution that emphasizes the importance of oaths, including the presidential oath of office. Secondly, they were trying to root out former Confederates from government positions, root and branch, you might say. And to do that, they had to take a broad approach, at least to which officials would be excluded or from what positions they would be excluded. And that would include being a state governor, being a state sheriff, that sort of thing. Now, of, of course, you could say that the Part of it is kind of what kind of harm do you think that insurrectionists in office might do in the future? The other would just be the thought that they just simply didn't deserve to hold office because of what they had done. Now, in the case of the presidency, it's a lot more about the potential harm that could be done in the future, right? As against, say, uh, a local sheriff who can't do all that much harm if allowed to remain in office. So I think the, the two considerations are there for Donald Trump, but probably more about what might happen if he returns to office rather than sort of what he did to forfeit his right to run for office. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to be uh, adding another voice to the conversation that uh, encourages exercising caution when applying the 14th Amendment, Section 3 in particular, to Donald Trump. But Professor Magliaca, I want to just, again, dig into uh, the specificity or what the meaning of specific pieces of language in Section 3 are, because, of course, Um, One of the uh, hallmarks of the Constitution that contributes to its longevity, but also the battles that happen over it, is the language in many places is quite vague. So uh, people who are trying to interpret the Constitution are left to interpret the text, the intent, and the application in modern times. So in Section 3, it says, no person, blah, 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 who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. That word engaged, how how should we read that? So there are cases from after the Civil War that discuss that and some other legal authorities. So one way of understanding it is to say that you have to take an action that furthers the insurrection. Another way that it was described was that you have to contribute something useful to the insurrection. And both of those are fairly broad ways of looking at it, though they're not identical. And the breadth makes sense for two reasons. One, as you said, the sort of offense of insurrection is grave, right? So we might be more willing to have a broad standard or a broad net for people who engage in that kind of conduct. But the other is, again, it's not a criminal punishment. You know, if we have a criminal punishment, we are more concerned about having broad standards of liability. When it's only an exclusion from office, we're not as concerned about that. We're, we're more interested in trying to further whatever purpose the language has. 
So then um, I guess it's it's difficult to tell, um, again, like you said, the spe- specifically what they meant by engaged. I think maybe the vagueness is part of the point. But what about this this next part that comes about giving aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, thereof meaning the Constitution? What might they have intended to mean around aid or comfort? So there are different opinions about that. Uh, One is that it's just another way of saying the same thing, that these terms engage, incite, aid and comfort were all used interchangeably during the period of the Civil War to describe the kind of conduct that would make you an insurrectionist. Another thought is that that language applies only to traitors because it draws on the language of treason. You know, when we say aid and comfort, often we're talking about someone accused of treason. And there was an active discussion about whether maybe a few people like Jefferson Davis ought to be prosecuted for treason in 1866. So they might have just been adding that language in to cover that possibility. Uh, so it, either of those is possible, or the third option I should mention is you could say that aid and comfort is broader, that in fact, if I'm a, uh, cheering you on while you're doing something, I'm giving you aid and comfort, and that might be different than directly participating. But my own view is that essentially aid and comfort is really just a kind of interchangeable term with engage and there isn't all that much difference between the two phrases. Okay, then, Professor Magliocca, what parts of Donald Trump's actions and or his statements from Election Day, November 2020, through, I, I would even say, the inauguration of Joe Biden on January 20th, 2021, uh, would you would think would apply such that um, he should be barred from office by uh, dint of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Well, first, there's the whole course of conduct leading up to January 6th that can be described as engagement in the insurrection. More specifically, there is the speech of January 6th itself, which a federal district court has said could be understood as incitement, even under the very rigorous standard that we apply to incitement under the First Amendment. Third is the fact that the president uh, did nothing to stop the violence once it was underway, and that can be understood as contributing something useful to the insurrection. That is, the lack of action there was a contribution of something useful or important to the insurrection. Um, And I think, just stepping back in a broader sense, it's hard to understand the uh, events of January 6th without seeing Donald Trump's central role. You know, there is one person who has been disqualified from office under Section 3 for participating in January 6th. He was a county commissioner in New Mexico who was part of the crowd. He didn't engage in violence. He just trespassed onto the Capitol grounds, but he was disqualified. Now, it's Hard to imagine that the only person who should be disqualified from office for January 6th is a county commissioner from New Mexico. If someone like that engaged in insurrection, it would seem like the person who is sort of the central moving force in all of this also ought to be said to have engaged in insurrection and therefore be disqualified. Hmm. 
Well, Professor Magliocca, stand by here for just a moment, because now we're getting into the territory of, okay, let's presume for a moment that there's enough consensus around Section 3 of the 14th Amendment um, that the belief is that Trump is has self-disqualified from office. How would that apply, you know, now in, a, in the United States and what could potentially be the consequences of that? So I want to bring Michael McConnell into the conversation. He's pre- professor and director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. He's also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And from 2002 to 2009, he served as a circuit judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Professor McConnell, welcome to you. Uh, thank you. So uh, overall, just give me your, your brief assessment of what Professor Magliocca has said thus far about the applicability of Section 3 to Donald Trump. Well, I don't think there's any serious argument that Section 3 does not apply uh, uh, prospectively. So I agree with much of what uh, Professor Magliocca has been saying. But there are any number of other uh, questions of interpretation that I think are much more uh, difficult and and even dubious. Um, f- I guess my main sort of underlying disagreement is with Professor Magliocca's uh, commenting several times that this is only a civil sanction and therefore it can be given a broad interpretation, unlike say a criminal sanction. But to say this is only a civil sanction, what we're talking about here is depriving you know, tens of millions of Americans of being able to vote for the candidate of their choice. Uh, there are certain circumstances in which Section 3 is going to apply, but I think we have to be very careful about this because if we adopt a broad interpretation of what engaging in an insurrection means, then uh, there's going to be no end of the mischief of people going in and challenging the eligibility of their political opponents uh, to to run whenever uh, they engaged in, or apparently, according to Professor Magliocca, even gave you know verbal support uh, to uh, to political riots, which unfortunately are relatively common uh, in the United States. And I think we need to have definitions of of terms like insurrection. Uh, that uh, distinguish them uh, from uh, uh, from from mere riots. Mm. Well, Michael McConnell and Gerard Magliocca, hang on here for just a minute because I want to tangle with the questions that you just raised, Professor. So we'll do that when we come back. This is on point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. Just a quick note about something we're working on. Later this week, it's going to be about HG. 
TV and how HGTV has changed a lot about how people think about what their home should look like. Maybe everyone thinks their home should look the same now. I don't know, but we want to hear from you. Has it inspired you? Your favorite HGTV show to renovate or make other changes? Or if you watch HGTV, full disclosure, I do sometimes. What are your favorite shows and why? So tell us your thoughts using the On Point Vox Pop app. You can find that by searching for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. You can also call us at 617 353 0683. That's 617-353-0683. That's for much later this week. Today, we're taking a close look at uh, some admittedly weightier matters. We're talking about the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America and whether it applies to Donald Trump. I'm joined today by Gerard Magliocca. He's a professor of law at Indiana University and by Michael McConnell, professor and director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. And Professor Magliocca, I'll come back to you in just a moment. But uh, Professor McConnell, you left us with a really interesting question about the need for clearer definitions around the um, rather open terms of engage, insurrection, rebellion, aid and comfort. Now, I presume that at some point in time, that's exactly the question that's going to be put before the United States Supreme Court. So I'd like to lean on your experience uh, in the uh, uh, the 10th Circuit in the appellate court, because you had been asked for many years to apply a same sort of legal interpretation to many cases that came before you. So, first of all, how would you define, in this case, insurrection or rebellion? First, I have to say that this is only speculation because the only concrete example we have of an insurrection uh, under uh, Section 3 was the Civil War. Uh, And we all know what that looked like. You know, that was, you know, 15 states out of the union, uh, ripping up the Constitution, writing their own Constitution, making war against the United States, uh, overturning uh, the government. And uh, I'm not saying that every insurrection under Section 3 has to be like the Civil War, but that is our only actual uh, model. So uh, it, it certainly should be closer to that. Uh, than a than a mere uh, riot, which we have uh, with alarming frequency here, where people do use violence uh, to disrupt governmental operations, to occupy government courthouses, to prevent the enforcement of the law, uh, with the in the interests of trying to pressure uh, the government to take some sort of action that that they want, or often just uh, to express anger. And here, I think there's a very good argument. Uh, that the uh, people on January 6th were not trying to overthrow the United States government. They were trying to put pressure improperly and illegally, but to put pressure on uh, the Congress uh, not to count the to count the votes in the way that they thought would be uh, proper, and which we know uh, w- would have been uh, improper. The key point to think about here is that you know insurrection is a crime. But not one of the participants in January 6th has been charged with the crime of insurrection. Mm-hmm. The Department of Justice has brought criminal charges against several hundred people and, and several criminal charges against Donald Trump. None of them have been charged with insurrection. Now, 
I don't know, but I assume that the Department of Justice has more access to all of the evidence and has thought this through. They had every incentive to charge these people with insurrection, and they didn't. I have to assume that they had a reason not to do that, and my guess is that they didn't think that the charges would stick mm-hmm. because this probably did not rise to the level uh, of an insurrection under, under well, the, the statute is 18 U.S.C. 2383, uh, and uh, therefore, uh, Section 3 as well. Mm. Well, Professor Magliocca, I'll turn back to you for a response. But I also will note, and again, I am not the legal scholar here, but as I see the text of Section 3 in front of me, it doesn't necessarily say uh, must have been charged with uh, insurrection or found uh, been convicted thereof. But your response, Professor Magliocca, to what Professor McConnell is saying. Yeah, so first let me say it's a pleasure to discuss this issue with Professor McConnell. I respect his work very much. Um, And I agree with him that, first of all, we need to be very careful about not having too broad a definition of insurrection. And second, I agree that mere verbal support of an insurrection is not enough, uh, unless that verbal support actually is incitement under the standard articulated by the Supreme Court in Brandenburg. Uh, Third, I will point out that, um, yes, you don't need a criminal charge or conviction for Section 3 to apply. None of the individuals disqualified after the Civil War were charged with a crime or convicted of a crime. My understanding is that really nobody has been charged with insurrection since the Civil War. Uh, Thus, I can understand why there would be some hesitancy in kind of bringing that charge out uh, if you're a prosecutor, but that's a different question from whether you think it might apply here. I I would add just one other note, which is um, I think that you can distinguish an insurrection in part from a riot because Section 3 contemplates that the insurrection must be against the Constitution rather than against just the law or any private property, for example. And the crowd in question on January 6th was disrupting a constitutionally mandated proceeding under the 12th Amendment. That puts it on a different plane from any number of other riots or even perhaps an attack on the Capitol when the Congress is just meeting to do ordinary business. So I think uh, a narrow definition of insurrection under Section 3 can still encompass and ought to still encompass what occurred on January 6th. Mm. Now, just for clarification for folks, uh, Brandenburg, the case that Professor Magliocca just cited, is Brandenburg v. Ohio from 1969, where the Supreme Court found or ruled that the government may forbid incitement uh, when its speech directed at inciting or producing imminent lawless action. So that's uh, the case that the professor was referring to there. Um, Michael McConnell, the, I want to get to the, the second major part of uh, why you you say people should be considering this moment with some caution. Um, and that is the denying voters the choice that if Trump were somehow removed from the ballot in, uh, you know, in in the states, and of course that action would have to happen in the states, which is an interesting point to think about as well, that it would somehow be anti-democratic, you said. Um, first of all, tell me more about that. And second of all, if there's ever agreement about uh, the nature and import of Trump's participation uh, in what led to January 6th, 
Is it terribly anti-democratic to prevent someone from appearing on the ballot who has already expressed and acted in a way that is dangerous, damaging, and undermining to the Constitution of the United States? Uh, First, let me make clear, I I agree with Professor Magliocca that uh, Section 3 does not require that anyone, Donald Trump or anyone else, have been charged and convicted of the crime of uh, insurrection. My point is simply that the people who have the evidence of everything, they have the be- are in the best position to judge whether Donald Trump and the others committed an insurrection, namely the Department of Justice, have apparently come to the conclusion uh, that uh, such a charge wouldn't stick. Now, the, the point about democracy here is, you know, I don't really care about Donald Trump. He's not my guy. I don't I don't support him. Uh, but I do care about voters of the United States being able to cast votes uh, for the candidates of their choice. When you look around the world, one of the most common uh, ways in which unfree uh, countries manage to prop their regimes up is by disqualifying uh, the uh, you know, the opposing candidates uh, from being able to run. We have never done that in the United States. And, you know, I'm not saying never. I'm just saying that this is not a path that we want to go down uh, uh, easily. We want to be extremely careful before um, making that uh, that step. Because, you know, in, in, in a country like ours, our general judgment is that it is the voters of the United States who should be able to assess whether uh, someone is, you know, dangerous or or too much of a risk or or whatever, these are points of real contention. You cannot just say uh, that uh, Donald Trump is a, you know, is a is a bad man and and has done bad things and therefore should be excluded. That's a judgment for the American people to make. Mm. Uh, point taken. But again, again, my layperson's reading of the the 14th Amendment isn't that people are just saying that the person under question would have had to, A, take an oath in the past to protect the Constitution of the United States, and then, however you define it, either engaged in or aided in or offered comfort to those who were engaging in an insurrection. So it's slightly more specific than that. But Professor Magliocca, I think Professor McConnell is bringing up an extremely important point. That, in fact, it's the uh, the need for interpretation of the language of Section 3 that leaves it open to being um, applied to, in, in future, to political enemies, essentially. That we could take a major step down that slippery slope where suddenly the Constitution becomes weaponized by party against party to keep people off the ballot, to deny voters choice, uh, and to essentially become more more anti-democratic rather than uh, a system in which the pro- prosecution, excuse me, what the Constitution is protected. What do you think? Well, a couple of thoughts. One is that if Donald Trump had been convicted in his second impeachment trial, presumably he would have been disqualified from serving again because it's, he was already out of office. So that would have been kind of the only point of a conviction. And then people wouldn't have been able to vote for him in this election. So it can't be that we're always against that. Uh, It has to be perhaps that you think maybe an impeachment trial is the more appropriate forum or method of doing this than a Supreme Court decision under Section 3. 
the second thing to say is that, look, we there are risks to disqualifying Donald Trump, and I think Professor McConnell has articulated them well. There are also risks in not disqualifying him in the sense that you could be encouraging further insurrections or riots or however you, you know, prefer to describe it by essentially saying there's really not much in the way of accountability for engaging in that kind of behavior. That is to say, there were arguments during the impeachment trials that Donald Trump should not be convicted because that would also set a problematic precedent in one way or another. Well, it, so far, it would seem like the we're facing more of the downsides of those decisions rather than the upsides of uh, avoiding the whatever consequences you think would have been problematic flowing from an impeachment conviction. So I think those just have to be weighed, and that's something that we're all going to be doing over the next several months. Yeah, and we'll probably be doing it even more so because there already is the inkling of some court action uh, around this. Because last Wednesday in Colorado, a lawsuit was filed by the Washington-based watchdog group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, also called CREW. They are representing six Republican and unaffiliated voters in Colorado. And their lawsuit challenges Trump's eligibility to appear on the ballot in Colorado. Noah Bookbinder is the president of Crew, and he told us a bit more about what's happening in Colorado. What we're really hoping for and planning for and what we think will happen is that we will be able very quickly to get into court and make the case. Uh, we're not looking for a judge or any official to, to make an arbitrary decision. Uh, we are prepared to put up witnesses and evidence uh, and make a comprehensive case that this was an insurrection, that Donald Trump engaged in it, and uh, have a judge uh, rule that uh, that Donald Trump is constitutionally disqualified and that the Secretary of State of Colorado is compelled to remove him from or keep him off of the ballot in Colorado. Bookbinder says Colorado is just the first state where they filed a lawsuit. There will be more, but he was unwilling to tell us which states were on their list. What's likely to happen, however, is that the case will get kicked up to the Supreme Court, possibly. And if the court decides to hear it, it's there that a decision would be made as to whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to Donald Trump. If we are successful in these cases, in this case, and it does go up to the Supreme Court, uh, we really believe, and, and we we think the chances of that are high. Uh, obviously, there's no knowing what a court will do, but we think the evidence is is very strong. Uh, we think the Supreme Court is going to be willing to listen and give it a fair hearing, and it's very hard to predict what they will do. That's Noah Bookbinder, president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Well, we've got only about a minute left, unfortunately. So, uh, Professor McConnell, I'm going to give you the last word here. What's your reaction to the fact that there is at least one case, if not more, pushing this question about Section 3, uh, you know, currently before state courts? We haven't even talked today about how Section 3 uh, is to be implemented. There are a host of procedural complications. Uh, I'm not an expert on Colorado uh uh, civil procedure, but I gather that there are very serious questions about whether this organization uh, can bring the lawsuit uh, uh, at, at this premature moment that the case may not be ripe. There's the further problem that uh, we're talking about running for 
uh, a, a placement on the on the Republican ballot, it, the Republican convention is going to decide who its nominee is. And even if Trump were to be thrown off the ballot in Colorado or elsewhere, it doesn't solve the problem because the Republican convention is free to nominate whomever they want. Mm. Well, Unfortunately, we are out of time today, but nevertheless, I want to thank both of you. Michael McConnell, professor and director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School, thank you so very much. Thank you. And Gerard Gerard Magliocca, professor of law at Indiana University and author of American Founding Son, John Bingham and the Invention of the 14th Amendment. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.